0: Our series this fall is called Blessed Beyond Measure, and we are now in Ephesians chapter four. And uh, as we turn there, let me just make a mention too with regard to our YouTube and and Zoom channel. You know, this is our second week in which we've gotten it up. I want us to think of Zoom as like going to church. And uh, the neat thing about the way we've set up our Zoom channel is that you get to watch the live service inside of Zoom with the added benefit of seeing your friends and family right there online and it's kind of fun to see everyone who's viewing it some of you might feel like a little shy oh i don't want to make my hair up i don't want to look nice i'd rather just be in my bed watching but hey if we didn't have covid you would do all the routine of getting ready to go to church so think of the zoom service as going to church and as a way, obviously, to connect at a deeper level. I really do think too that there's a mental health aspect. I know I get great joy out of seeing people online. Um, So see it as a way to minister to one another. And we'll probably have a Zoom reunion once a month just to get people into the habit uh, of coming online. So for those of you that are on Zoom right now, you're first movers, you're pioneers, spread the word and uh, we're glad for that. Okay, so uh, let me just commit our time uh, in prayer here, and then I'll dive into the message. So Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for spiritual community. Uh, We thank you for just that you've given us your eternal word and that we can study it, that we can gain from it, that you give us light. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, so let it have its way in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we start, I wanna use the US elections as a backdrop to my message. Uh, I typically don't speak on political situations, but um, the situation in US defies any kind of explanation. In two days, Americans are gonna be going to the polls to determine who is the next president. And this may be the most consequential US elections in modern US history. Uh, Never has there been such a firestorm over choosing the president. Uh, Even Canadians are jumping in and talking about this election in heated tones, and I'm hearing of Canadians whose friendship are being tested to the max over the prospect of Biden or Trump, even though they can't vote in the US elections. People all, all, all over the world are tuning in, and I've never seen blood boil so fast as when they start talking about Trump and Biden. Of course, there's never been a US president like Trump. Either you're violently against him or you're fervently for him. And he has created a very polarized environment. But my question this morning is, what if the elections is not about Trump? What if God is using it for something completely different? In First Chronicles chapter 12, 32, The Bible says the sons of Issachar, that was a tribe in Israel, they were appointed by King David to be in his administration because they understood the times and what Israel should do. In the life of a nation, there's seasons, there's events, there's chaos. And David specifically appointed the sons of Issachar to be watchers, to understand and to be able to interpret what is going on. And isn't this what we need, Issachar wisdom, in this hour? More than ever, we need prophetic understanding, prophetic interpretation, prophetic knowledge. And this is how God keeps the church strong and on her game. Well, in Ecclesiastes 3.1, the scripture says there's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every matter under heaven. Now, note this phrase, under heaven. As my good friend Clem Ferris pointed out in a recent sermon, this points to times and seasons being under the sovereign hand of God. No matter what happens in the U.S. election, if Biden or Trump wins, we as Christians can be in rest because God's sovereignty is actively at work, even though we may not understand it or see it. Isaiah 14, 24 speaks of God's power in the affairs of men. The Lord of armies has sworn, saying, certainly, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. If God plans it, if God decrees it, it will stand. Later on in that chapter, the word says that, as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? In other words, no one can thwart the purposes of God. The prophet Daniel in chapter 417 says that God's decrees are given in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He grants it as in rulership to whomever he wishes. Some people pine for Obama-like leadership. Other people can't wait for Trump to be re-elected. But you know what? It's in the counsel of God to decide who is in and who is out. And therefore we read in Psalm 75, verse 7, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is firmly in charge of this U.S. election in every election, in every nation at all times. We need to remember this. This is the great confidence that we have as Christians. So what if this election is not about Trump, but about something else? Well, here's my thesis. I believe it's about Israel. And this might change our point of reference and change a little bit how we think about this. On September 15, 2020, just six weeks ago, God used President Trump to negotiate a previously unimagined treaty in the Middle East. When Israel and United Arab Emirates, UAE, signed their peace agreement at the White House, it shocked the world and the entire Middle East process. It was completely counterintuitive that such a treaty could be struck between Israel and an Arab nation. This treaty was so significant in the eyes of Israel and UAE that they agreed to call it the Abraham Accord. Now, what's the significance of this title? It refers to the biblical story of the Jews and Muslims having Abraham as their common father. Abraham was the father of Isaac, from which the Jews came. And he was also the father of Ishmael, from which the Muslims came. This title, then, is a historical recognition from the Bible that Abraham is the father of both lineages. This is a stunning collaboration and show of unity between historical enemies. And while the uproar and pushback around this agreement was fierce from various Arab quarters, this treaty has become a massive tipping point, as other Arab nations are now thinking of striking a similar agreement. As many as ten Arab nations have indicated behind closed doors they're open to going the same direction, including whispers of Iran, which has vowed always to wipe out Israel off the face of the earth and who regularly refers to Israel as a dog. This is peace breaking out in the Middle East, in a region that has historically convulsed over how to get there. Now to understand how incredible this is, just realize once again, this happened only six weeks ago, yet all the while our attention has been diverted to the trench warfare of Democrats against Republicans. It shows how easily our minds can be taken with the wrong focus of what is actually happening under heaven. So the angels, the counsel of God in heaven, Are they looking at CNN? Are they looking at Fox News? Are they looking at all the news outlets and wringing their hands over what's going on? Or do they see something different under heaven? But as exciting as this treaty is to me, this Abraham Accord signals something even more important and more significant, one of spiritual significance. Could this be the start of open doors into the Muslim world with the good news of Jesus Christ? Just as the Gentile world was open to the gospel through the Jews, could this be the opening of the Muslim world to the gospel through the Jews? Could this be the opening chapters of a new era of salvation on the earth? Could this be one of the last frontiers of the Great Commission being opened up before our very eyes? Could the goodwill from this agreement with its open travel and commerce and economic cooperation, tourism, create a whole new climate for the gospel in the Middle East? and the Muslim world, of which there are 1.8 billion. Now, things are happening so fast with this. I just checked the headlines this morning. The UAE cabinet just approved visa-exempt travel between their country and Israel. You don't even need a visa anymore. Israel has to approve it on their side. But we are talking the highest level of openness between two countries that have been at odds with each other for so long. Now, is it a coincidence that we're also sending a team to Jerusalem right now this fall in concert with what is unfolding in the Middle East? We had no idea that this Abraham Accord would happen. This is divine timing. And we need to pray like crazy for the Benazou family who's being commissioned by us to go to Jerusalem. So this U.S. election can seem like it's about Trump, but I see that God has some bigger designs. No doubt there are specific purposes that God has for the US, but God being the ultimate storyteller is writing a much bigger story than maybe we could have thought or imagined. Which brings us to Ephesians 4. If God is acting globally in such a powerful way, right before our eyes, in real time, historic stuff, then we must act locally, and make our lives count for Jesus like never before, we have got to double down on the gospel, which is the title of my message this morning. So here's what Ephesians 4.1 says. Therefore I, Paul is speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, he's writing this from prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is such a great reminder. We have a great call in our lives. It's not a small one, a wimpy one, or a mediocre one. It's a call to live worthy of the gospel. And this is a theme that's always on Paul's heart. When he's writing these letters, he's reminding the churches that he writes to and the Christians that he writes to over and over, live a life worthy of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, he writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 10, speaking to the Colossian Christians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Speaking to the Thessalonian Christians, a the church that he planted in that city, walk in a manner worthy of God. This is a main theme of Paul's writings. Now, we may have various goals for our life, get married, land a job, have kids, have a good career, complete my bucket list. But never forget your highest call is to live a life worthy of God. And as Paul writes on in this first part of chapter 4, we see there are three ways in which we are to double down on walking in a manner worthy of our call. First point is this, is that we need to cultivate great character. This comes from verses 2 and 3. Paul says, to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is nothing like character and integrity that bears witness to the one that we serve. When we're humble and gentle and patient bearing with one another with a good attitude and living in harmony with one another it speaks loudly even more than our words where are the specialists in character and not those who have just focused on making money where are those who are fierce in making sure that their integrity is solid and not just that they're fierce in political debate God always has us in character boot camp because being conformed into the image of Jesus is God's highest goal. Why were the multitudes attracted to Jesus? Because his disposition and demeanor was so reflective of God and worthy of the gospel. It's like they had this massive juxtaposition. They looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees and all their rabbis and they go, okay, yeah, we want to get close to God, but we just don't feel the pull. And then they looked at Jesus and go, boy, do we ever feel the pull? If that's what God is like, I want that. I'm going for it. And so therefore they flocked to him by the thousands. It says that they just flooded his home. That there was no room. And even at one point they had to cut a hole in the roof of his house because they were so anxious to get near to him something about his character and his disposition and his demeanor that was so attractive oh so that's what god is like that's what a christian looks like rooted in humility and gentleness and patience and diligence in fostering peace among the brothers and sisters in church one of the things that god says he hates the most is those who create strife and bring division Those who are doing whisperings and things behind people's back that create a disunity in the body. But Paul says here, one of the things about living a life worthy of the gospel is that you are an oil and a grace upon the life of the body. Are you more mature this year than last year? Is your character deeper this year than last year? Are you progressing, dear pilgrim? Last weekend, I was watching an MMA championship fight. MMA stands for mixed martial arts. And it was involved a fighter by the name of Khabib Nurmagomedov, a devout Muslim from Russia. He had a perfect record of 28 and 0. And he was going into this championship fight, putting his record on the line. And his father was his coach through all of those 28 wins. In fact, his father began training him as a little boy, and part of the legend of Khabib, that's his name, Habib. part of the legend is that God taught him wrestling by putting him in front of cubs and bears. And there's literally film clips of him wrestling with bears. And he was able to translate that into a wrestling career, MMA career, and he was completely undefeated. But as he was going into this championship match and training for it, his father passed away from COVID. He was grief-stricken, and many thought that this would affect his mindset and maybe lose and give up his perfect record. His opponent was super tough. He said, no matter what happens in the ring, I will never tap out. So there was a lot of excitement about this match, and many were thinking that his opponent would be the one to break his perfect record. Instead, Habib defeated his opponent in spectacular fashion by choking him out in the second round. It was one of the most impressive championship wins in MMA history, but here was what was more impressive. Habib had a chance to end the match in the first round by breaking the arm of his opponent, but he did not do it because his opponent's opponent's parents were at ringside And he did not want to humiliate their son in front of him. So he could have won. I'm sorry if it seems a little gruesome. I'm sorry if your pastor is watching MMA. You know, this is a way that I relieve my stress after pastoring through the whole week, watching some good old guys beat up on each other. So they're in round one, and Habib is in total control, and he's about ready, and he could have broken his opponent's arm, match over. But because he knew that his opponent said, I will never tap, which means to go like this and say I'm giving up, and because his parents were there, he was not going to humiliate his opponent, so he let him go. And he said to himself, I'm going to look for another way to win, which happened in the next round. So he defeated him in the next round by choking him out until he passed out. I know, this sounds really bad. But actually, it's one of the most compassionate ways to win a fight because after the opponent passes out, they just get their oxygen and breath back and they revive. No broken bones, no concussions, no internal injuries. So Habib had specifically plotted to win by defeating him in a dramatic way, but actually in the most safe way. After the match, when they were interviewing him and he told them what his strategy was as the match was occurring, the MMA fighters and the pros in the community could not believe what had happened. Number one, that he had that kind of presence of mind. Number one, that he would honor his opponent. And number three, that he had the confidence to see a way to win in the next round. He acted with such compassion and honor against his opponent. At that moment, he was a great witness for his Muslim faith. And earn the respect of many. That's an example of our call to act in a way that people will go, wow, that was admirable. I want that. I want to be like that. So, our first encouragement from Paul here is don't be sloppy in your character. Second thing here, verses four through six. Paul says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are called to be truth tellers and truth bearers. Preaching the gospel of this world may earn you some popularity, but it doesn't set people free. One of the most popular refrains in our culture is, there are many ways to God. Don't give me this, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There are many ways, or you've maybe heard the phrase, all religions basically preach the same thing or lead to the same God. But we know that these statements are off. There's only one God, only one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Savior, because only one man rose up from the dead. To preach something else is to give people false hope. The whole purpose of studying and mastering the Bible is to grow deep in truth so that you can bear testimony to its life and joy. Is this document true? Are the things that are written in here, do they actually transform my life? Do they make a difference? Is it just another self-help book? What makes this different and unique and distinctive from anything else? The only way you will know is if you master it, give yourself to it, and then you can bear witness. Yes, it is true. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, you are living letters. You get to go out, your friend community, the people that are around you, you are the walking, living letter of the Bible. Isaiah 61 tells us that God's purpose is to give us the oil of gladness. You know, I've walked with God now almost 45 years. And more and more and more, I just see that God's endgame is joy. It's about joy. The oil of gladness. Isaiah 61 says that God wants to make us oaks of righteousness and plantings of the Lord. So note the connections here. You cannot be an oak without righteousness. That is living in truth. You cannot be a planting unless your roots go down into the, deep down into the soil of truth. And you can't enjoy the oil of gladness unless you've been set free by the truth. Let me tell you a funny joke about how important it is to get our doctrine right. A new monk arrives at the monastery. He is assigned to help the other monks in copying the old texts by hand. He notices, however, that they are copying copies and not the original books. So the new monk goes to the head monk to ask him about this. He points out that if there was an error in the first copy, that error would be continued in all of the other copies. And if those copies are wrong and they got copied, then the errors would just be amplified. The head monk says, we've been copying from copies for centuries. But you make a good point, my son. So the head monk goes down into the cellar with one of the copies to check it against the original. Hours later, nobody has seen him. So one of the monks goes downstairs to look for him and hears sobbing coming from the back of the cellar and finds the old monk leaning over one of the original books, crying his eyes out. The word is celebrate, not celibate. The word is celebrate, not celibate. Now, this is a funny story, but it illustrates something really important. If we're off, others who follow us will be off. Conversely, if we're off, we will lead our own lives wrongly. So we need to study the word. We need to get it right. We need to be accurate over it. We need to master the scriptures, and we need to get our doctrine right. Later on in this verse here, it talks about how One of the marks of the immature is those who are tossed by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's in verse 14, more and more winds of deception are coming out. more and more weird doctrines are coming out more and more. There are such sophisticated constructs, the trickery of men to get us off our game, to create doubt about Jesus Christ. But if we want to walk in a manner worthy of God, we need to be solid in the Bible. We need to be solid in truth. We need to know how our ducks line up. We don't want to copy copies. We want to go right back to the original. Third thing here that Paul gives us on how to double down on our walk is to get under the covering of the local church verses 7 through 16. <clears throat> Paul says, to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when he, Jesus ascended on high, he led captive the captives and he gave gifts to people. I don't have time to go into this kind of cryptic phrase, but just to point out that when Jesus went up to be with the Father, he gave gifts to people, to men. And he, those gifts are apostle prophet evangelist pastor and teacher so when jesus rose from the dead the bible says he gave gifts to men specifically these five offices we call them the fivefold gifts or offices we also refer them to them as the ascension gifts these are when jesus distributed when he ascended now we could have a whole conference to teach on these five offices and And many conferences and books have indeed been written on them. But for time's sake, I want to emphasize a different point. Know that these gifts were distributed when Jesus went to the Father, meaning that the first thing that Jesus did when he left earth was to give us the covering of leadership. God did not want us to be uncovered, but instead made sure that we would have shepherds to look out and care for us. There was not a moment where we were left orphaned. And this shows God's priority that all Christians should be found in a local church. And we cannot walk in a manner worthy of God without being in a local church. There's no Christian in the Bible of note that didn't have a home church, not one. The local church is designed by God to be our greenhouse, our training ground, our hospital, our university, our fraternity, our playground. It's our spiritual family. It's where we mature and grow up to be like Jesus. So Paul says it this way in in verses 12 and following, that these leadership offices are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We talk about this in E1. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? A mature man. This is what God is after, is our maturity. Yes, we love our little kids, and they're so cute, and they might be in diapers, but you know what? We expect as parents for them to grow up. You don't want to see an adult in diapers. And we don't want to see Christians in diapers. But we are called to maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the, what, fullness of Christ. There's that phrase once again. What did I share on last week? That God wants us to have the fullness of Christ of Christ. We're to grow up in all aspects into him, not just some aspects, but all aspects. And then verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. We need to be fitted together. We need to be next to one another. We need to serve each other. Yes, there's some friction and yes, there's some irritation, but that's part of the training process we need to be together that's part of the reason why we put zoom out there so that we can be together and not just in our own little cocoons okay it's going to take a little work oh my gosh pastor rich i got to get the login. i got to do this i got to comb my hair i got to look nice yeah you do that's the way you love your brothers and sisters is to show your shining face to someone else and you know what if you don't everyone's gonna say oh i'm so glad someone's doing the same thing as me This whole verse here in verse 16 speaks to the fact that we need to be knit together into a body. The proper working of each individual part causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians it talks about the body being different parts, the eye, the ear, the foot, right? The eye just can't say okay, I just want to be an eyeball. That's it. It'd be kind of scary if the body of Christ was just an eyeball sitting there or if it was just a hand or just an ear. No, you need all the parts working together. It's impossible to grow without being part of a local church. And anyone that resists the idea of being part of a local church is deceived. Lone Ranger Christians will either wilt in the desert, get picked off by wolves, be plucked over by scavengers, or end up in the world. Not being a member of church is a life of selfishness and nurturing a wrong spirit. You can't learn to love and be selfless if all you live is for yourself and not others. In my 30 years of being a pastor, I've never seen an unattached Christian with a right spirit. Almost invariably, weird Christians don't have a local church. They have weird ideas and weird doctrines, and they only create trouble wherever they go. And those who resist being part of a church are only inviting difficulties for themselves because they don't want to be accountable to anyone. And 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, says this very bluntly. For rebellion is as reprehensible as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as reprehensible as false religion and idolatry. That's stiff stuff. Divination is to be out from under God's protection. It's to look to a wrong source. It's to look to a dark source. And the Bible is saying here: when so when you rebel, when you refuse to be, when you refuse to be part of a local church, you are out from under God's care and love and protection, and now you're under someone else's covering, and that covering is like divination. You're under the influence of darkness. That's heavy stuff, but that's how the Scripture sees it. Of course, conversely, if we give ourselves to the local church as as is God's design and blessing for our lives. Psalm 52 verse eight, King David says this, as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now my wife Mimi has recently really gotten into indoor plants and taking care of them. And oh, she loves them so much and waters them perfectly and makes sure the light is on them and no bugs get on their leaves. There's so much tending to these these indoor plants to make sure that they're flourishing. And that's a picture of the shepherd. He's watching over us to make sure that we get the water, we get the nutrients, that there's no bugs that eat at us. And green is the idea of a life that's filled and not dried out. Olive, as in olive oil, speaks of anointing, that we're not lacking in the Holy Spirit. Tree speaks of diligent growth. Growing into strength that provides shade and benefit for others. You're not going to get this unless you're in the house of God. You know, the world has a saying, it takes a village to grow a child. But that's just paraphrasing the teaching of the Bible. It takes a spiritual family to grow a Christian and to mold his and her life into a walk with God that is worthy of the calling. So we summarize living a life worthy of our calling is number one is to cultivate great character, which is about having a right spirit. To study and master the Bible is about having right thinking. To get under the covering of a local church is about having right alignment. And if we state this in the inverse, it means we cannot live a life worthy of the gospel if we have a wrong spirit or wrong thinking or wrong alignment. So in a time when God is moving globally right before our eyes, as in the Middle East, the call is for us to act locally and to contribute to the cause. Now is the time to not shrink back, but to double down. So what is God saying you, to you today? What is he quickened to your hearts as we've looked at these verses, are there any areas that you need to shore up in your character, your knowledge of the Bible, your relationship to the local church? Father, we look to you right now. We thank you for this call that goes out from the word for us, God, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And Father, this is not an obligation, but it's a great delight and it's a love for us Because when we gaze upon you, we see your tremendous care for us, your tremendous love, and we become motivated out of love and not out of duty. And we want to do these things. We want to have sterling character. We want to understand the word. We want to be part of the the body of Christ. And would you stir, God, that grace afresh in our lives? And maybe our gaze has fallen on things that are just temporal, trying to earn this or get that. But let us be reminded today, God, of our high calling. And more than ever, this is the time that you have ordained for us. We are not living in this time by accident, but you have caused us to live in this time so that we can be witnesses for you. So, Lord, if there's some homework that we have to do in our hearts, there's some homework we have to do in our lives, then help us, Lord, to complete that homework and to do well Thank you, God, for the challenge, but thank you, God, for the joy and the celebration that we can have in you. We thank you, God. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.